Hey, Asantawa, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Karen? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited that we're having this conversation today. First of all, it's super duper timely. But uh, before I even get that far, we've just met. We met because we were on a panel together. I knew of your work, but had never you know, met you um, uh, prior. And I want you to tell our listeners, what is it that you do? Especially what are you doing in Oakland? Well, I'm a nurse by profession. I currently work at UC Davis Medical Center in the emergency room, which is located in Sacramento. I'm actually in SAC. But what we are doing here in Sacramento and in Oakland is the Anti-Police Terror Project, an organization that I'm co-founder of, for some time has been combating police terrorism. And we began to take notice of a pattern that folks who were in the midst of a mental health crisis were more likely to be harmed by police, right? And specifically the narrative, right? That we kept hearing case after case after case, it was either substance use or mental health, right? Issue and then person was subsequently harmed by law enforcement. So we were doing the work already in a, in a capacity that was unofficial. And mm-hmm. what we decided to do was do the work in a capacity that was official and available to the larger public and that's where we created Mental Health First and within our Sacramento chapter, less than a year later, that was replicated in Oakland, California and has okay. been active in Sacramento for two years and a little bit over a year and a half in Oakland. Wow. So, so one of the questions I have is starting with this idea of policing and anti-terrorism. So that already existed, but it existed separate from the mental health space. It was just existing as a response to police response to community communities. Is that basically it? And mm-hmm. primarily communities of color, I'm guessing, right? Okay. Um, and so when you all started doing the work that was more intentional related to mental health and police response to mental health emergencies, how was that received by folks? Like, was everybody, yeah, we're doing this. This is right. You know, get the police out of this situation. Um, More black or brown folks are being harmed. Like, tell me a little bit about kind of how kind of folks received uh, what what it is that you're doing. As part of the larger like abolition conversation, right? There's this question of if not the police, then who? And when we think about the different sectors that police exist in, mental health is one of those sectors, right? Right. Police exist in our schools. They exist in hospitals now. You got air marshals. You got, right, like they're they're entrenched in most of our systems, right? So when we take a look at, okay, where do the police exist? Where can they not exist? They can definitely not exist in this mental health space. In fact, what we found is that they tend to cause harm when they're in that space. And I have seen firsthand how many times when we come against someone who is possibly not in our shared reality, a lot of the times their thought processes, fears, paranoia, whatever term we're using, right, to encompass that is around those authoritarian figures. Mm -hmm. Um, So in fact, not only are they causing physical harm, but even more psychological trauma. Just imagine if you're in a situation and your worst fear is in fact confirmed, And an officer shows up to haul you away to some place where you have like no rights. What they do in that space is show up and determine if someone is 5150able or not, meaning that they can be forcibly hospitalized and then transport them to a facility that would maintain that, that status. 
So, and, and this, of course, you know, when you talk about this, I always get like the little goosebumps because of, you know, my own personal experience and interaction um, initially with the police and having no idea that when I was struggling and I was told, well, we're going to have to call somebody to help you. We're going to have to dial 911. In my head, I heard what I heard was, oh, you're dialing 911 because I've come to understand from the public view and even their providers, a mental health condition is like any other physical health condition. Mm -hmm. So when I hear that I'm in a medical emergency caused by psychological distress, I think an ambulance is coming and that's not what showed up. (laughs) And, um, right. And so, so my expectation was sort of dashed to begin with. And then when the police were at my door, I was kind of like, I'm a black person in an all white building. And the police were at my door, you know, saying welfare check and talking really loudly and saying they're the police. And I have visions of kind of, you know, police with dogs from the 1960s, because I'm a 1960s baby. And it all didn't work for me in my head. And it didn't work for me in my own psychological state either. So as you said, you just articulated it really beautifully. And I don't, I don't know that many folks think of it this way, that, you know, it's feeding into possibly the fears and experiences people are already having that mm-hmm. then get exacerbated if they have a cultural or a LGBTQ lens with all of this stuff as well. So it just mm-hmm. takes it from having distress to adding more trauma to this distress somebody's already having. Um, and then, you know, no autonomy in the situation. You can't get out of it. It's just this like multiple cumulative mess. I will put it that way. So when it's, I didn't actually know that this has been going on as long as it has been um, in the work that you're doing in Sacramento and then to Oakland. Why hasn't the mental health movement itself kind of, why don't we know more about this? Just saying. (laughs) We have a lot of work to do. Divorcing danger from mental health. I think that inadvertently the two kind of exist in the same space. And I think that perhaps the reason why there's not as many folks, right, because there's been a great response from folks all over the place who are wanting to do similar work, um, especially with things like 988 on the table, with things like CAHOOTS Act on the table, right? So folks are gaining interest. And then also there's funding that has come down the pipe that are going to help build the structure for these things. So there are folks, but I think anytime I have a conversation with someone, the first thing they want to know is the danger piece. And I'm like, I've been a psych nurse for Mm -hmm. God knows how long I've been in the streets and in the capacity of like a street medic during protests, mental health first, protesting myself. Like the most danger I have ever been in responding to someone is when an officer was close by. Um, because they were perpetuating, right, the violence. So I can't say that loud enough. Folks Mm -hmm. are the danger, the danger, the danger. And statistically, even looking at a program like Cahoots, who has had to call the the police very little, we've never had to call the police. They've had few injuries. We've had none, right, when it comes to, like, being Mm -hmm. in actual dangerous situations. The reason why the police, when they respond, have violence is because they are the perpetuators of that violence. And that's a conversation that needs to be had. 
that it, it's not the patient that causes it, that it's yeah. the police response that perpetuates it. And I think this is so powerful because I think when, you know, people with lived experience say the very same thing, it, I don't want to say that it's ignored, but it's harder to kind of wrap your head around and then do something about it. But when somebody who, and I'm just going to put it this way, whether people agree with it or not, I'm just going to say it. When you have a psych nurse, an ER psych nurse say, hey, danger happens when the police show up. And I've been in the ER where, you know, you see all sorts of stuff in the ER. I've been in the ER. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's not the reality of the situation. It's the exception to the rule. But why does the exception happen? But the exception becomes the pervasive narrative. So when we do think about things like the 988 legislation, which is to have the, you know, easy, easy number versus uh, as your sort of mental health or behavioral health crisis response number, basically the suicide prevention lifeline that's expanded, which is a long number is now an easy to remember 988 digit. But, um, you know, we have to ask ourselves, who are the call operators? What biases might they have if they get a call and somebody says, well, you know, there's a black man outside yelling and screaming and he's running down the street naked, you know, is it going to get a mobile crisis team, which may include a peer or an EMT or a psychiatrist. It may include a co-responder model, which may be a police officer with another kind of mental health professional. What will it be? We don't, we don't know. So how do you interact with um, either the, the 988 or mental health crisis number that, you know, there, there are several, I think in Sacramento, but how, how are they aware of what it is that mental health first is doing so that it, that they can refer to mental health first. And then two, how do people get to mental health first just at the very beginning with like bypassing everything? I know it's possible. How, but how do they do it? So we have a direct number now, 988 is still in the, the implementation phase. And in the interim, they've just forwarded, right. Those calls to um, the suicide hotline, right, which mm-hmm. is definitely great. And a lot of the questions that you posed around, like, so where are these calls going to? I believe that it's going to be, each county is going to be able to set up their own, like, clearinghouse call centers that right. fill those 988 calls. So Sacramento County, I imagine, um, will be part of that that rubric. But there is a big question mark of, how are dispatchers going to be trained? Are we taking those same 911 dispatchers who are going to hear naked Black man and think that they also then need to patch in the police? And when you said that, I, I thought back to, there was a case, I forget the state, but I'll never forget this man's name. It was Daniel Prude. Yes. Yet naked and bagged and still assassinated. Are, are they going to call the police, right, for someone who is unarmed and not in our shared reality? Or are they going to say, hey, we think that these folks at Mental Health First or somewhere else, right, would be a better fit for that call? We did sponsor and did a lot of work and big up to James who, who did the work around the Crisis Act in California. And we hope that the Crisis Act is something that will or can replicate beyond our state, but it allows the state to give funding to community-based organizations to create their own first responder programs. And that's Mm -hmm. not just limited to mental health, right? Right. Um, There were folks who, who were in that pool of people that created that bill that were like, well, what about when these like natural disasters happen and folks that are undocumented cannot go to these safe zones. They don't feel safe evacuating with sheriffs or evacuating with 
EMS mm-hmm. because um, they're undocumented, right? So they were interested in creating like a first responder system that didn't put that population of folks in danger. So I hope that as things like the Crisis Act passed and hope, hopefully replicate, that we can just rethink this whole first response framework, yeah. right? Like how do we have folks that look like us, walk like us, talk like us from our community, but also have the skill set in order to respond to varying crises or not, not even crises, even intervention, right? Because there's right. a lot of folks that do like violence prevention work. And that is very much like a first responder, right? Like when the when the beef pops off before the guns come out, like who is coming and having those conversations and de-escalating because we know the police aren't in that business. Right. And I think this is um, so important to talk about because somehow we see some of these things as separate from mental health, but mental health is in everything. So that if you are struggling, if you're, you know, kind of worried about uh, your immigrant status and, you know, there's a hurricane or an earthquake and you're not willing to go, not willing, but fearful, rightly so, yeah. of being able to get some support that you need, how might that impact your mental health? And what if you have an existing mental health condition? How might that impact? So I think, you know, these are all sort of trauma-based, if you will, sort of kind of responses to things that occur in our communities, but we may see them as separate from mental health, but they are a part and parcel of mental health. So if somebody calls um, mental health first, kind of walk me through exactly what happens. And I know once we talked about the experience where uh, I believe it was an African-American man or African-American, I don't remember man, woman, um, you know, use certain terminology that we understand no code switching and we, you were able to like support. So, so let's start from the beginning. What happens when somebody calls and kind of who answers the phone and how is all that kind of uh, supporting the person? Um, and if they do need to go to the hospital, like how do they get there? So that, that story in, in particular, I, I think stands out to me because like the, the solution was just so easy. Had he had to use the traditional right ways to, to get transported from where he was to the hospital, he could have been in danger, right? When it was just a matter of a ride. But the the term that he used was, I'm not in the mood, right? And <laughs> as a Black person, right? It's just like, I'm not in the mood means I'm up to here, right? I'm <laughs> fed up. I'm not, not having it. And knowing that he was in that space, I can only imagine what would have happened if one of those officers showed up and been like, so how much meth did you smoke today? Right. Like, you know, (laughs) like, how can I help you or what is it that you need? So we saw that particular issue with just getting him a ride to the hospital. And I imagine that a lot of the things he were, he was not in the mood for, he got a lot of right. Once he actually got into the facility, but at least we were able to help him get there safely. Yeah, I mean, when you told me that story, I, you know, I think about the importance of language and understanding language from a cultural perspective mm-hmm. and how, you know, when we're not at our best or we're not in the mood or we've had it up to here, we can use those quote unquote euphemisms, but I will say they're not euphemisms. It's just our language to express how we're feeling, but somebody has to translate that. The beauty of, again, sort of having a diverse workforce is for this very issue because people might not know what that terminology means and then be able to get to the underlying issue and help do some problem solving. But, um, you know, you are bringing up another point too about 
the crisis response is only that. And the crisis system too is only that. There's still the bigger system that a person may be um, involved in or have to be involved in, in which the approaches that you're using, which are person-centered, community-based, culturally informed, culturally delivered, you know, um, by peers, they're not going to get that when they get to the other the other parts of the system. What kind of backgrounds or training or experience do people have who are doing this work with Mental Health First to do the work? I mean, are you training them? Do they have other kind of training? Are there also peers, people with lived experience who have had interactions with uh, uh, both police and emergency services and various other systems and services in order to you know, access and, and uh, move forward in their recovery? We don't have any requirements. I mean, except mm-hmm. humility. We do ask that folks have some type of lived experience. We have been shockingly surprised, not shockingly, like being a healthcare professional and also like working inside of these very limiting constructs, right? Of what, like, what is health? What is healthcare? More and more, I'm seeing folks like myself who are like, nah, 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 we got to do something different. This is, <laughs> this, this ain't working. We got to do something else, you know? So um, there are a lot of folks who live in that space who are like healthcare professionals, healthcare workers in some capacity that have um, volunteered their time. We do train folks. Our training is amazing. It was written by one of our um, core folks, Chayo, and it really dissects the one, the the terms that we use to categorize mental illness, really dissects Mm -hmm. it, really juxtaposes it to like what medical crisis could look like. And what differs from our training, I would say from others that are available is at the end of the chapters, it's not like, or call 911. <laughs> our, our, our sections don't end with that sentence. And then some things that we talk about is like the power in doing nothing, right? Just like being present for that person, ensuring that in that moment there is safety and accepting that like this problem may not be solved in this moment. Mm-hmm. And that's where some of our follow-up comes in. We have folks that call us like once a week, right? And we sit and we chit-chat. And I can um, I can only imagine how many times we've prevented those kind of folks from having to be hospitalized, right? Mm-hmm. Because maybe the real issue is loneliness, right? right. You know, prolonged yes. feelings of loneliness can then cause feelings of hopelessness or suicidal ideation, right? And unfortunately, that is a really hard thing to quantify, right? Mm-hmm. To put in into the, the, the data envelope and send off to the powers that be to say, see, this works. So, and, and my concern about 988 and crisis system reform, this is the first time I'm going to say it publicly. Somebody's heard me use the term once a couple of days ago, but I am going to say it now more publicly on the podcast is my concern about, because there's such a focus and funding and money on 988 and mental behavioral health or mental health crisis system reform is that that in and of itself is turning into its own industrial complex. And I have such a concern that we are creating a crisis system industrial complex, and it may not benefit. No, get rid of the may. It will not benefit black and brown people, because that's not where the focus is. Am I not seeing this? Am I seeing it differently? Am I being too pessimistic? Because listen, there's a whole, like, be clear, the industry exists already, 
right? Like there are whole schools of thought around crisis communication, crisis intervention, how to like manage someone's aggressive behavior, even if like Mm -hmm. to the extent of like placing restraints or using our bodies to restrain folks, right? So this school of thought around crisis has long existed. And I think that the investment into managing crisis is a little much. And if we put half of that money into building the infrastructure, then in fact, we might be able to mitigate, right? Some Mm -hmm. of those crises. And I don't know if it's our culture or all this trauma just like reflecting back onto us, but there is Mm. something that is much more attractive about crisis. The beginning of that, that moment that is much more understandable or tolerable than crisis prevention. I don't know if that makes sense. Speaking my language, yes. But it's it's like we rather invest in that conflict of the crisis than to prevent it. You know, I'm wondering if it's far more visceralable, this visceralable. I was gonna put two words together. It, it's far more visceral and tangible, visceralable <laughs> to people so they can understand it when other other things are just not that tangible. Like, you know, when we talk about um, relational skills and people skills, being able to work in teams, for example, that's a, called a soft skill, right? Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. it's not tangible. It's a soft skill. It's, mm-hmm. A soft skill is not important as a hard skill, that really tangible content stuff. So I get this sense that kind of what you're saying, and I'm maybe that's what I'm feeling is that it becomes sort of this Oh yeah, we 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 get crisis. We we get the impact of crisis and that's maybe easier to resolve in the short term than the prevention stuff that becomes fixing a lot of social ills. Mm-hmm. By the way, my big fear too is that mental health gets to hold the bat for fixing all of the social ills. Honey, I don't know why we can't get to a point where if we are having a cri- a housing crisis, why we don't figure out how to get people in houses? I just don't understand for the life of me why we cannot go from point A to point B. Yep. Why yep. we got to zigzag our way, right, from a problem to a solution. And, and, and I think that you're right. More and more things are going to be thrown under the mental health framework. Right. Yes. The, the need to be there's this law. California is trying to pass a law that like if you turn down a housing resource three times that you can be considered gravely disabled. But we're yes. not talking about whether or not these housing opportunities are sustainable. Like I'm not going to go stay in a hotel for seven days, give up all of my stuff to go do that just to be back on the street a week later. Anyone in their right mind would be like yo, I'm good. I need something that is more concrete, right? Like more sustainable, long-term even. And there's no question to what these housing services look like. It's just like, if you turn down, you know, three hots in a cot, you you can't be right in the head. So I actually had to testify at the uh, joint legislative hearing in California around this very issue of expanding the definition of gravely disabled under um, LPS or Latterman Petrus Short. 
And what was really interesting about that, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that people can um, access the, it was an all day hearing and it was an investigative hearing. It wasn't a, and here's the bill and let's move it forward. It was much more the uh, health committee and the judicial committee looking at kind of what does this mean and kind of how, you know, what are we supposed to do about it? And what was striking for me um, in reading some of the reports was that once again, yes, mental health um, carries the burden of fixing housing, employment, all of these things that are in a broad swath, sort of social services. But if somebody doesn't take them or they're not doing well because they don't have them, it's mental health's fault and mental health has to fix it. There'll never be enough money. There'll never be enough providers. And that's problematic. Then the other piece, if you you know listen to uh, the testimony, is around sort of who's accountable to ensure that people have access to these things to begin with um, in ways that meet the actual need? Like, are we asking the right question and solving the right problem? Do we understand what is happening to people who are currently under LPS um, orders, I guess is the right word. And the reality is 50% of the counties are not reporting. So we don't know how these people are doing. We don't know where these people are. We don't know if the programs and services that they're receiving are meeting their needs. We have no clue. And then for the information where we do have a clue for the counties that are reporting, they found that there was disproportionality of people who are under LPS um, orders, if that's the right term, mm-hmm. who are Black. Mm-hmm. Why are we, And then we don't know what's happening to 50% of the counties, so where there may also be disproportionality, why would we expand anything? I don't get it. And then when you hear from people, uh, especially during this whole pandemic um, period, who mm-hmm. have been helped in some way by some of the you know, Project Room Key and different programs, mm-hmm. what people weren't understanding is you could be in Project Room Key, but you had to change your room every two, every three, four two. days. Come on, man. So Who it was almost it's that? it's almost like, well, wait, do you even do we understand? I call it the journey map of the people that we're trying to help and support. And we're we're hitting on something that I hope people take to heart to ask those tough questions, mm-hmm. to look at the underbelly, to look under the iceberg, as I call it, so that we have a clear understanding, you know. You know, I love I love a lot of like euphemisms and one of the euphemisms that were are sayings, I guess, that was out there is, you know, hey, we're trying to get to people before stage four, like cancer, like mm-hmm. cancer, there's all this prevention and we want to have this in mental health. But I think how we've interpreted that is, oh, great, we're at stage 3.7. We are before stage four, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're really only at point three, point seven. Right, we're right. Really, why aren't we at point zero or point, right, you know, right. whatever, you know, or we're waiting till people get to the edge of the cliff and capture them right at the edge or right when they're getting ready to step and fall off mm-hmm. or even maybe when they're falling versus it took them forever to get to the edge of that cliff. What's what's happening in that forever space? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's happening in that? zero to 3.7 to 4.0, or, you know, falling off the edge of the cliff, being at the edge of the cliff for black and brown folks. What does that look like? And those to me are questions that are kind of unasked and unanswered, but I, you know, really appreciate uh, first and foremost that, you know, through the anti-police terror project that MHF, you know, Mental Health First was born and kind of brought into this world. Mm. I would love to see it scaled. I would love to see it scaled. Right, us too, us too. And yeah. I, um, 
there's folks that have started like programs or started their road right to creating a program that were inspired by us right Mm -hmm. and I feel like that is the dopest thing ever um even more so than us like catching a city contract or something right like right like encouraging folks to build independent systems which I think which is where we are in our course of evolution, specifically in this country. I think more and more folks are understanding that these systems are not ma- are not made to serve the masses. They are made to serve those who have access to them, right? Because mm-hmm. um, depending on who, who you are, you could walk into an ER and get a bed immediately, or you can wait 10 hours. It really yeah. depends on, right? Like a lot of the other right, systems, it, 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 it's heavily on who you know. Um, yeah. And I know lots of stories where even that, uh, being black doesn't really help anyone. Well, and who wants to be in an ER? I mean, you know, it's just, it's just, no. And I think that's for anybody, you know, I have a family member who has, you know, heart condition and, you know, uh, there was a time where it was very clear they needed to be in the hospital. They were in the midst of a heart attack and they were like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to bother anybody. No, you know, I think I'll be okay. It's like, what is the situation? Like you need to go. And it was fear. It was loss loss of control, meaning somebody else is going to be controlling me in a hospital because that's what happens. And, um, you know, it was being human, like being human. Who wants to be in a hospital? No one. Nobody. Um, and, and maybe if you do, to me, that might be sort of an interesting right, kind of home. Yeah, that might be <laughs> something completely different that we won't get into with this. But, you know, if there's one thing that you want to leave, um, you know, the folks who listen to the podcast, you know, you're clearly an unapologetically Black unicorn. I think both of us have been like snapping up, thumbs up, you know, <laughs> clapping around a lot of these issues that you're talking about. But what's one thing that you would like to leave the listeners with? The boxes aren't real. I think that we have to get to a place where we understand that the messages that tell us that we're not enough, the ones that tell us that we're weird or that no one's listening to you or that your opinion doesn't matter and that your truth isn't factual. None of that is real. Those are our own thoughts and reflections, right? Being thrown back at us from our conditioning. Yes. So um, you are valid. You are worthy. Whatever it is that you are sitting on, right? That keeps coming, do that shit. Um, for me, mental health first is one of those things. It's like, do that shit. And it's getting done. It's being done and replicated. We can have our own systems. Any institution that currently exists started from a few people's crazy idea, whether that be the institution of universities or our fire department or CPS or prisons, right? Like it all came from somebody's idea we can begin to create our own institutions and sustain those institutions okay and with that i am snapping clapping head nodding thumbs up amazing thank you thank you for spending this time with me i really really appreciate it and sharing your wisdom so thank you so much thank you for having me up it's been an honor to spend this time with you thank you Okay, and for our listeners, remember to join in to Unapologetically Black Unicorns next week.